Good evening, guys. Uh, if we haven't met, like Pastor Brett said, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm one of the staff members here. I lead the junior high group, uh, so it's always a joy to be able to teach in here um, for something different. You guys definitely pay attention better, I've noticed, so thank you for that. Um, how many of you guys were here for last week's message? Pastor Rob. Yeah, it was a good message, yeah? He, he talked about pursuing excellence and, and the intricacies of that, and it was a, a wonderful message. Um, so tonight, we aren't continuing Timothy, but we're going to continue off that idea. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. So raise your hand if you need a Bible and we have some guys in the back. Oh, two weeks in a row. Heck yeah. We're on point. Got it? One? One. It's good. Awesome. Romans chapter 7. So if you weren't here last week, uh, Pastor Rob covered the rest of First Timothy chapter 3, uh, looking at the ideas of pursuing excellence for the glory of God. Right? And, and that this isn't just something that is reserved for staff members at the church, or the more mature Christians, or those who maybe are more serious about Jesus. But this is a call to anybody who proclaims Jesus as their Savior. To anybody in the body, this is, this is a call to pursue excellence. We see examples of this uh, all over Scripture. Things like First Thessalonians 4 seven th- says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This idea that God has called the believer to something different than what the world practices. Something different. Uh, That's how God operates. And he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so before we jump in, I just want you guys to know, and I I hope you know this already, but when Pastor Rob exhorts us in things like pursuing excellence and and being part of the community and taking action in politics, this isn't just a man going after his own personal pursuits. Like he's not going after his own personal benefits. This is, this is him being a, a faithful minister to relay God's call to the believer. Um, he, he doesn't speak from the pulpit for, for some political agenda, right? So that when he's gone, we go, oh, he's out now, another one of those ARPs. But, but this is something that God has called him to, that this is where God is calling him to pursue excellence. And so in our studies of, of striving for excellence, We do this by living according to the ways of God, how he's called us to live, outlined in scripture through his word, his law, and his commandments. And so we're going to build on this idea in chapter seven tonight, um, because we hear the word law and we go, oh, no, 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 law, that's Old Testament stuff. I'm new covenant, law, law, no, no, no. So like, if you feel called to pursue excellence, that's your call, but but that's that's not a call for me. No, we, we saw in 1 Thessalonians, it's a call to the body. So I'm going to pray for us before we jump in. Sound good? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've made us your bride. We thank you for your love. We thank you that, that you pursue us. Thank you for every soul in this room. Holy Spirit, would you minister to each and every one of us, uh, that all of us here, including myself, would be learning from you, that we would be sensitive to, to what you want to speak to our hearts. Um, we come here middle of the week, Lord, hump day, ready for the work week to be over. Uh, God, let us rejoice in your word, Lord. Uh, let us rejoice in, in, in how we get to worship you in, in every avenue of our life. Lord, that it wouldn't just be pushing for Sunday, pushing to Wednesday, and then just struggling through the rest of the days of the week. 
Lord, but that you would fill us up so that we can go out and be a light in our workplaces. God, we can be a light in our schools where you call us, Lord, that we would be pursuing excellence, not for the sake of bragging or boasting, but the sake of your glory, that we might be a light to the world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're jumping in to Romans chapter seven. And to catch us up, what what we're looking at is, is we're walking in on Paul explaining to us how we combat the sin that comes up in everyday lives, which really, if you think about it, are the things that will pull us from pursuing excellence, that God calls us to pursue excellence. And, and on that journey, we see something that looks so much better, right? Lord, I want to fall. Oh, whoa, new car. Like, Lord, I'm going to get this new job, buy a new car, new house. Like, I'm going to pursue these things. Right? And so Paul is combating everyday sin, just this idea that, that we struggle daily with temptations of the flesh. We struggle daily with wanting to pursue these things that, that simply aren't Jesus. And so even, even, though, even though hopefully everyone in this room is in the body that we are believers— We know for a fact that just because you've accepted Jesus as your savior does not mean your life immediately becomes perfect. Am I right? Or is that, am I the only one in here who's not perfect? Like maybe I'm doing the whole Jesus thing wrong, but I got Jesus and I still had problems. I was still tempted in my flesh, right? And so Jesus imputes his righteousness upon us, but we still face temptations of sin. And that's what Paul is looking at. And we saw Paul, if you, if you go back to Romans 6, we saw Paul begin to break this down. He dissects this topic. He says in, in, in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, Certainly not. How shall we die to sin? Who died to sin, excuse me, live any longer in it? And, and at the heart of chapter 6, what Paul really gets to is, is an issue amongst Christians that I think a lot of us gloss over. It's one of those things that we've heard every day since we started going to Sunday school, but I think a lot of us aren't catching on to it. And it's this idea that we understand, we have an we have a, a intellectual understanding that we're dead to our sin, but we often fail to remember that Christ's death, which took our sin, was followed immediately by the resurrection. Meaning that, so too must the death to ourselves and to our flesh be followed by a resurrected life that walks and lives with Jesus, that pursues excellence. And we see in Romans 6, it talks all about the grace of God, all about the grace of God. And I'm going to say something that I don't think a lot of preachers will will tell their congregations, but I, I appreciate it that we here at Calvary Chapel do. It's this idea that that grace is dangerous. We hear grace and we love that word. And it's a good word. There's a lot of power behind it, right? That, 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 that the Lord shows you grace constantly, that you don't deserve so many things in your life, yet the Lord still loves you and blesses you. And we go, oh, grace. Oh, well, I'll write it all pretty and I'll hang it on my wall. Grace, oh, grace. Grace can be dangerous. Grace can be dangerous. Here's why? We respond to grace incorrectly in one of two ways. The first is that some of us hear the word grace and we just go crazy with it. 
We just go crazy with it, right? Grace, grace means I can do whatever I want because Jesus already took my sins. So if I just add more sins to it, Jesus will die for it and he'll be glorified. And that was chapter six. He's like, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. No, the point of grace isn't to allow you to continue in sin. That's not, that's not our point. Paul will contend with that. And he addresses the people who say, well, because Jesus died for my sins, I can just go sin some more. And his response to those people are, if Jesus died for your sins and you've experienced freedom from that, why would you want to go back? If you've experienced freedom from your sin, why would you want to go back to those things? And you become an abuser of grace. And for the longest time, I'm, I'm not going to lie, for the longest time, when I saw somebody backslide, I guess you could say, I always thought it foolish. Are you kidding me again? Why am I not surprised? Of course they sinned again. It's every week. We got to do counseling with them again. And we call it foolishness. But at the heart of all of that, it truly is heartbreaking. We call it foolishness. We go, you idiot. How could you do that again? Don't you know what Jesus did for you? But it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for Jesus. It's heartbreaking for Jesus because we take his offer of grace, right? His gift of grace, like we just sang, and we, we start to abuse it. We mistreat it. The wonderful acts that he committed on the cross for us, we abuse for selfish gain. It's heartbreaking for his people to watch somebody who says they experienced Christ to then go back to the things of this world either means that they didn't truly experience the fullness of Christ or they forgot what it felt like to see the glory of the Lord and go, but the world, you know, I guess so. and you, you, you fight this balance and sin just starts to take over and it's heartbreaking for his people. However, on the other hand, some of us hear the word grace. This has been me for, for quite some time. Some of us hear the, gra- the word grace, but we don't experience the freedom that comes along with it. We hear all about grace and what that means for our lives, but we don't get to experience what freedom in Christ truly means, right? Pastor Rob gave an amazing message on what freedom meant, but we don't experience what that freedom really means when Jesus shows us his grace. We take, we take what he did on the cross. We go, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. You took care of the ones in the past. I got it from here. I got it from here. I'll take care of, I'll take care of it from here on out. And, and for some reason, just every day seems like a struggle of a, don't do this. Don't do that. Oh, shoot. I can't do that. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. And every day you don't experience freedom and grace. You act like Jesus's sacrifice was just for your past sins. And that was your ticket to heaven. But now, oh, you better keep your ticket there or he's going to take it back. Right. And we don't understand the fullness of his grace. And that manifests in us clinging to the law. Though Jesus died for me, I will continue consciously or not allow the law to have dominion over me. That will drive my every day. And so as we talk about the pursuit of excellence, we need to make sure that our pursuit of excellence does not turn into a pursuit of legalism. That yes, we want to strive for the things of the Lord, but we need to understand why. That if the law outlines 
the ways God's people should act, we need to understand truly what the law is at the heart of it. And for those who may hear grace and aren't experiencing the freedom, it manifests itself in, in, in a couple of interesting ways. Some of us, some of us will become work-driven. It's all about the output. At the end of the day, what's your output? Did you do enough? You, you go to work and you got to get in earlier than the day before. And you got to stay later than you did yesterday. And it's all about what you can get done. It's all about impressing somebody. It's all about making God love you more. It's about making yourself feel better. This is the Pharisees. These are those taking the laws of God, the commandments of God, not understanding their true purpose, and you become works-driven. It's about sustaining yourself in the things of God. Some of us, myself included, it manifests by causing us to be guilt-driven. That every sin you commit just seems to tear you apart. Every sin weighs upon your shoulders when it weighed upon Jesus's shoulders on the cross already. And that you, for some reason, can't grasp that Jesus has will and for, has forgiven you. And you just can't grasp that concept. And we believe in some way we must make up for our mistakes to God as though he didn't already take care of them on the cross. And so Paul will spend much of, his, of our time in Romans 7 explaining that, that there is a very real danger when we talk about grace in the abuse of grace and in an abuse of the law. That is, if we don't fully understand its purpose. And so I'll say it again, as we pursue excellence, we need to make sure that we aren't inadvertently pursuing legalism. That the point of you doing things well is not so that you can brag or boast. It's not so that you can make your way right with God. We need to understand why the law was established. And so we're going to jump into our passage, starting at verse 7. So very similar to the way he opens up 6, he opens up 7 on the other end. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He says, certainly not. Because I think a lot of us think the law is sin. Like the Pharisees abused it, so that's sin. I, Jesus fulfilled the law, Jesus, right? But no, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. And so he says, is it sin? Certainly not. And right there, we see a very important point that Paul's making, is that though we can mistreat the law, it's not because there's fault in the law. See, as Paul pulls us from the spectrum of, of abusing grace, uh, as he pulls us from one spectrum, he doesn't want to pull us, excuse me, from, from legalism. He doesn't want to pull us too far in the other direction where we got to go back to Romans 6. And so he wants us to understand there is an importance to the law, but that if we ca- fail to catch it, it becomes death to us. Because Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen, do not think, right? We just said this, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So then, if there's a purpose to the law, but we're not to have dominion, the law is not to have dominion over us, where do we find ourselves? 
Well, we can't free ourselves from the dominion of the law until we first understand what the law does, its purpose, and how Jesus fulfills it. So the first thing the law does, we see in verse seven, Paul tells us the law provides us a means to identify our sins. He says, what shall we say then, right? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. How do I know if I'm not in excellence if I don't have a standard? And this is God's standard. This is how the people of God live. He says, how am I to know my sin if the Lord doesn't outline it? And I love, I love that Paul uses covetousness. It's the last of the 10 commandments, thou shalt not covet. Because covetousness is 100% a heart issue. Covetousness is one of those sins that it's easy to hide. You do some good works, cover it up, right? You just don't talk about the things you covet. You're just a quiet little servant. So you can hide covetousness. And I love that he uses that. See, we see an example of this when Jesus confronts the rich young, rich young ruler. Excuse me. See, he says, he says in, in Mark 10, that as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He says, he finds Jesus. He comes running up to him. So excited. He says, what do I got to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do? And look at Jesus's response. He says, so Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. So he's establishing where our standard is. It's in Jesus. He says, you know, the commandments do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Jesus gives him a list. He says this, 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 you know, the commandments you were raised in it. So the rich, young, rich, I don't know why I can't say that tonight. The rich young ruler says to Jesus, he says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. I did it. This is like, this is square one of Judaism. I got this Jesus commandments. Boom, done. Jesus then says, looking at him. And I love the words that it says after Jesus looked at him, it says he loved him. What Jesus does next is a very, very loving action. Jesus says to him, one thing you lack. One thing, just one little thing. That's it. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. He says, one little thing, sell everything you have, give it away. Now, obviously Jesus wasn't giving him a, a, a means to earn his way into heaven. Jesus wanted to confront him on a heart issue. And so he says, sell everything, give it to the poor, pick up your cross and follow me. And this breaks my heart. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He couldn't give up his possessions for Jesus. And so Jesus wasn't expressing to the young ruler that abiding by the law, that our pursuit of excellence isn't bringing us closer to salvation. It was to show to the young ruler the state of his heart. And so Jesus uses the law to identify the sin that the ruler struggled with. 
And so it serves the same purpose for us. When the law was established, when the law was established, God knew we weren't going to keep it up. You look back when, when, when Moses went up the hill, he got his 10 commandments, right? God says, these are them, take them back down. Moses comes down and everybody's worshiping a golden calf. Like he didn't even get down to the bottom of the hill. They had already started, right? By the way, if you're going to start another religion, like golden calf, really, like Jesus picked this, or I mean, they picked this, but, but, but the idea is that Jesus knows that the law is not something that we're able to fulfill ourselves. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, he knew that they were going to fall flat on their face immediately. But rather, God gave them the law to establish himself a people built around the character of God. Meaning that the law shows us where we lack in the character of God as well. And so this is why the law and our pursuit of excellence tie in. Because the law is necessary for us to be able to identify sin. But we have to be careful. Because even in the knowledge of our sin, do we find more danger? 1 Corinthians 15.56 says, The strength of the sin is the law. Well, Jesus, if the sin's supposed to point out my, or if the law's supposed to point out my sins, but the strength of my sin is in the law, what are we doing here? Paul Paul elaborates on this idea in verse 8 of our passage. He says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment. Notice he doesn't say that the law was flawed. He says, rather, sin took took an opportunity, because we already are, produced in me all manner of evil desire. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. So our point number two of what the law does is that one, what was it? The law provides for us a means to identify our sin. Point two, the law will stir it up in us, sin. If it identifies our sin, but at the same time, the strength of sin is found in the law. See, because the issue is that for us as rebellious little tiny people, we hear a rule and something in us is like, I got to break it. I got to break that rule. Like I just got to push the boundaries a little bit more, right? And it starts young, right? It starts from like, when was the, have, have any of you ever told a child a rule and like you never had to repeat that rule again? No, like my parents hated when I left my socks on the floor to the point where my father would pick them up and he would tape them to my door. And he's like, you're going you're gonna to eat these for dinner next week if you don't start picking them up. And you'd think after 22 years, I would have got that. I have at least 18 pairs of socks sitting just around in our apartment somewhere that my wife has to tell me to pick up because I just, I don't follow the rules. I hear a rule. I'm like, oh, my socks, I'll just lay them here because I'll wear them tomorrow. Like, <laughs> Right? Since we're young, we like to break rules. But don't think it stops when we get older. Don't think it stops when we get older. I'll give you an example. A couple weeks ago, my family and I and my wife went camping up to Canberra. You guys know where that is? Up north? A couple hours? And up there is a place called Hearst Castle. How many of you know about Hearst Castle? 
yeah, it's this just rich guy, and he had nothing better to do, so he built a big old weird mansion on the top of a hill that's like 50,000 acres, and he's like, hey, let's bring zebras and camels and all these things. So he's just extravagantly spent on like actual like architecture from Rome and Greece and like the, the, these Renaissance paintings and like whatever he could get his hands on. Like this stuff is legit. So, so, so you take a tour bus up this hill, up to the mansion, and, you know, they got Alex Trebek on the speakers, like, if you look to our left, you'll see the wild. And so you're listening to this, and you get to the top, and what's the first thing they do? They give you some rules. They say, first of all, first of all, while you're up here at the mansion, please, no gum. So I immediately started blowing bubbles with the gum that I had in my mouth that I knew I wasn't supposed to have, right? And I would make sure that I turned away whenever the tour guide looked, and then she'd turn back, and I'd Right? And so the next rule was, hey, guys, and these floors are all original. We have these carpets. Please stay on the carpet. So I said, okay, carpet, me. That's good. The carpet's over there. I'm over here. And, like, I was jumping on the floors, and I was dancing on the floors. They're like, this was a dance floor created at Bose when you jump on. So I was like, ooh, I'm going to test that. So I was, like, jumping on the floors when they weren't looking. I was breaking the rules. But they got to the last rule, and this one, this one just struck something in me. They said, and please... If you don't listen to anything else, please listen to this one. Please don't touch anything. And the first thing I did was turn to my wife and said, I wonder how many things I could touch. And so the whole time was just us doing this tour, and it was like, one, two, what's that? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And it was just me spending two hours up on this hill touching as many things as I could simply because I knew the person in charge told me not to do that. So I didn't hear anything the tour guide said, so don't ask me about Hearst Castle. But I know how many things I touched that day. It was a lot. Because we don't do what we're supposed to do, and we struggle to do the things that we are supposed to do. Sorry, we, we, we do the things we're not supposed to do, and we struggle to do the things that we're supposed to do. It's not something that you get mad at the kid for, and then you're like, I never struggled with that. Like, we struggle with that. Am I right? Or is that just me? We struggle with that. And it's this very issue Paul will identify in verse 14 of our passage. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I don't, I don't practice. But what I hate, I'll do that. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. It's this idea that I want, I want to do what is good. I want to pursue excellence. I want to be for the things of Jesus, but I don't. That in me, there's something that that wants to strive for the things of the Lord, but there's something stronger that is telling me to sin. And I will succumb to that more often than I would like to admit. It's these desires that war in all of us. And then that will bring us then to one simple point. Is we've seen two things the law does. And we see one thing the law cannot, will not, and will never do. Which is save us. And that sounds very basic Christian, but we need to wrap our heads around that. 
that the law cannot save you. A pursuit of excellence is not a pursuit of salvation. A pursuit of excellence does not precede God's pursuit for you, but it should always follow it. But it is not a pursuit of salvation. Abiding by the law is going to get you nowhere. So then where are we left, right? That's like kind of Debbie Downer, like, yeah, it's not going to save you. Bye. Where does that leave us? If the law is good, but it can't save me, what do I do with the law? How do I continue then to abide by the law and not let it have dominion over me? And it's perfect. Paul sets it up perfectly. See, what he doesn't do is, is to look to these people who are clinging to the law and give them a list of things to do to avoid letting the law have dominion over them. Right? The ones who are driven by rules, he doesn't just give a list of more rules to follow, which is what I think a lot of us would prefer. Like, okay, you just then tell me what you want me to do. You want me to do these things? All right, tell me how I get there. Just give me step one, two, three, and I will do that. I will do that. Because that's, that's the mentality that's built around us in today's culture. You go to work and you know what to do because your boss tells you what to do. You go to school. You know what to do because your teacher tells you what to do. This is your assignment for the day. This is your task for the day. Please have it done by the end of the day. Come back tomorrow. I'll have a new task for you and you can get that done tomorrow, right? That is the culture we've been raised in, right? So to the point where we even do it in our free time. You go, no, I don't. I don't do that. You do it in your free time because you go on Facebook and you'll scroll I know because I've seen my wife do it. You'll scroll for hours just to find these lists of how to make your life better, right? Ten, ten ways to eat healthier. It's like one way, eat healthier. Like, it's not rocket science. Like, ten ways to make waking up in the morning easier. Set your alarm earlier and just get up. Like, it's not, you don't need a ten-step plan, but we love these three steps to this, four steps to that, right? It's absurd what we will do for lists. So what Paul does not do is give us a list of ways to remove us from the dominion of something which is essentially just a list of things. Paul doesn't do that because then we would just cling to the new list. Nor, and I find this so interesting, nor does Paul give us a new perspective of the law. He, he, he says, rather, though, he doesn't, let me, let me rephrase that. He doesn't give us a new perspective of the law in that, okay, you guys are just not understanding the law. This is what the law is. This, is. this is what he does rather. He gives us a new perspective of what our relationship to the law looks like as we begin a life with Jesus. And that's really crucial that there's a distinction in that. And we're going to jump back to verse one of chapter seven. It says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. He's, Paul says, okay, think of a man and a woman. Love each other very much. Go to church every Sunday. They want to have two little kids. They're going to buy a house in the suburbs. It's going to be wonderful. They're going to drive their GMC, right? He says, think of a man and a woman bound by marriage. Now, under the law, she is to be devoted to him and him alone. 
in regards to this relationship. And if she were still married to her husband while he lives, and she were to go be with another man, what would we call her? An adulteress. If she leaves her husband while he is living, she's an adulteress. And this is our problem. This is our problem, that we so desire to be with Jesus. But I think a lot of us still consider ourselves to be married to the law. That we still see ourselves as having an unhealthy relationship with the law, where we become workers and not worshipers of Jesus meaning that we can't be devoted to Jesus completely because we're bound to another. We can't leave if we're still married to the law. So then, so then a lot of us, rather than, rather than freeing ourselves from the old master, we place the works that we can present to Jesus according to the law that we're still bound to. We present those to Jesus and we think that they in some way stand higher than the work that he presented to us on the cross in order to free us from that old husband. And practically, what that looks like for us is a very simple but very devastating issue. We will fight against individual sins. We will fight so hard against those individual everyday sins, but we don't allow Jesus to take care of the root of our problem, which is at its core, a sin nature, a sin nature. Meaning that when, when we exhort you to pursue excellence, it's not simply behavior modification. We don't need you to go campaigning. That's not the point. We don't need you to go serve on the educational board. That's not the point. It's not just modification change where, where your daily life just feels the same. You struggle with the same sins, but now you're engaged. That's not the purpose of it. It's not a matter of behavioral modification. It's, it's to be a result of spiritual transformation that comes from Jesus. See, because too often I will find myself begging for God's forgiveness over a sin I've committed, right? With the condition that what? I'll never do it again, God. I'll never do that one again. That one was really bad. I'm so sorry, Jesus. I promise you, I will never do it again. And then the next day, I do it again. And then I pray the same thing. God, oh, please forgive me. And I promise, this is the last time. I can't tell you how many times I've said that to Jesus. This is the last time, Lord. I promise. See, and the vision God gave me is that, is that when I do this, essentially what I am doing is I'm trying to pull weeds from my life to allow a seed to grow. But I failed to see that the seed was planted in bad soil. It's behavior modification. Let me pluck the wheat. Well, the soil was not fertile. And that's our issue. But Paul shows us our saving grace. Look at the second half of chapter 7, verse 3. It says, but, but is a great word in the Bible. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brother... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Do you guys just see what, God, or what Paul said there? Do you guys understand that? He says, if her husband dies though, she's free to marry another one. If her husband dies, she is freed from the law and she can marry another. But, 
but we see a little bit what seems like a paradox in there. See, because in Paul's illustration, we're the wife and the law is the husband, right? Because if, if, if the wife is to free to be married to another, the husband has to die, right? Which, which means if we want to remarry, then the other one has to be dead, which was the law. But we know that the law was not abolished. So Paul says that we, the wife then rather, have become dead to the law. That we become dead. Meaning that logically, the only way for us to be remarried is for us to have new life. You see what Paul did there? He didn't, he didn't expressly say it, but he flipped the roles so that we would understand that it's not the law that dies that allows us to get remarried. It's that we die and that allows us to be remarried if we have new life. And that's exactly Paul's point. Our struggle in removing dominion from the law is not trying to fulfill it. Romans 8.3 says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law will fail if you see that as your means to salvation. If your pursuit of excellence becomes a pursuit of God's love, a pursuit of salvation. That's not the purpose because we can't fulfill it. Nor, nor does removing the dominion of the law mean that we're trying to abolish it because it never died. What happened, what we said before, what happened is our relationship with it changed. Our relationship with it changed. And so Paul helps us find that middle ground between liberalism and legalism as he transitions from Romans 6 and through Romans 7 by showing us, by showing us that the law never died. He says that that we did. And in that death, we were raised with Christ in order that we might be married to another, to him who is also raised from the dead. So instead of us trying to prune ourselves of individual sins uh, f- from our lives by, by trying to abide by the law, that, that, that we just, oh, I, gotta, I gotta deal with this sin, or, although I can't serve in children's because this is wrong and that's wrong and I gotta prune this and prune that. And it, be, it, and it consumes our life, trying to abide by the law, Christ comes in and he changes the whole plan that we should bear fruit to God, the passage says. He plants the seed in fertile soil. And so we begin to close here. I want to I make clear the point that Paul is not in any way saying that the law has no place in our lives that we are to pursue excellence. But he does say that it often takes the wrong place in our lives. So then rather than using the law to try to justify ourselves before the Lord, brag to others, look holier than your fellow Christian in the seat next to you, the law is meant to reveal to us the character of God and where we're not meeting it. Not, not so that we can work on our character flaws, but to turn us to the one who makes us a completely new person. That's what our identity in Christ is. Not you, not you learning about how Jesus, Jesus's characteristics and going, okay, I'm going to work on. No, Jesus gives you his identity that you are fully new in him. You're not working up to being a new person. You are a new person in Jesus. Not that I wrote, not that we might be a new person, but that we get to marry another one. 
And he says in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. It's not a matter of, of pruning our sins to make way for fruit. It's about allowing God to replant us in fertile soil through a marriage to him. And this concept of marriage to Jesus is so crucial to having a healthy, functioning relationship with Jesus and being a part of his body, being a part being a part of his bride, right? We call the church his bride. That's what Jesus calls us because marriage is so important to him. So important that he has commanded us to remember it continually. See, the Lord instituted communion and we often explain one use of it, which is to remember the death, right? The death of the crucifixion, that the, that the bread represents the body that was to be broken and the wine represents the blood that was to be shed. But there's an even greater connection that Jesus makes by instituting the Lord's Supper. See, in the Jewish culture, when a man wanted to marry a woman, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he'd go up to his dad. He said, Dad, see, yeah, see, her dad. And so what the dad would do is he would find out who the woman's dad was. They would meet and they would negotiate on a price, but not for the woman's hand in marriage. They would negotiate on a price so that the son would have an opportunity to propose to the daughter. He would pay a price for the opportunity to propose to the daughter. And so they would all meet. And if they agreed on a certain price, all right, 40 camels, right? That was the price. You'd give them your 40 camels and you'd sit down and there'd be a cup, a cup of wine. And, and what the son would do is he would extend it out to the woman. That was his proposal. If she took the cup and drank from it, that was her saying, I will, I do, I agree to this. I want to marry you. And that's what it looked like back in the day. And so Jesus is sitting with the disciples, instituting communion at the Passover feast with his disciples. He's going through the traditions of the feast, right? The breaking of the bread. He's, he's following all the, 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 the rules. And he gets to the cups of wine. And he gets to a cup that was traditionally passed over at the Passover supper, that it was just left there. And he takes this cup. This is a cup. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, in the same manner, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This was the marriage cup, meaning that when the disciples were sitting there just having their Passover feast with Jesus, you know, they, they did this every year. They knew, that they knew the routine. Jesus is grabbing the wrong cup. Should we tell him? I don't know. Does he know that he grabbed the wrong cup? Jesus says, drink my cup. And what the disciples heard was, hey, will you marry me? Jesus says to the disciples, will you marry me? And that's the same question he asks us. Through communion. It's a remembrance of Jesus offering that he paid the price to propose to us as his bride saying, will you marry me? And so he died our death so that we too could be crucified with him so that we could die. The law could still live, but we get a new relationship with it. We're not married to it. It doesn't have dominion over us. And now we have the opportunity to marry another so that in Jesus we can find life and life more abundant. 
that we might be able to now pursue excellence for his glory. But we must be sure we remain free from the dominion of the law, married to the one who freed us from it. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for paying the price to be able to simply ask us, will you marry me? God, so often uh, I will look at my relationship with you and I will, I will just rate it on a scale of, of one to 10 where I'm either on fire or, or I'm really dry, God. But, but how self-centered is that to base my relationship with you on how I am feeling, God, when you offered to me the opportunity to be your bride, that you endured my death to be able to say, will you marry me? Not because we looked wonderful, but but scripture says that you were marrying an adulterous and unfaithful and a dirty bride. Lord, that you didn't come down to earth because we were so excellent in a world of unexcellence, but that you saw a lost and a broken people and you wanted to come down and pull us out of that so that we might experience excellence, that we might experience your ways. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to first establish a healthy relationship with you, what that looks like and what that means, God. We do pray that you would help us to pursue excellence, but that we would not inadvertently pursue legalism, God, that it wouldn't just be a task to to show off to our pastors or our friends or our ministry heads, God, but that every action Every step we take, every movement we make would be an act of worship to you, desiring that that your name would be known throughout the entirety of the world. Be glorified in our lives. We love you. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.